I'm Tammy Faraday, and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about amazing people who've navigated life's invariable challenges with courage, authenticity, grit, and grace. My next guest, Susan Burton, is the one-time producer and now editor of the Pulitzer Prize-winning weekly public radio show and podcast, This American Life, heard by 2.2 million people on more than 500 stations across America, with another 2.5 million people downloading the podcast each week. Susan's radio documentaries have won numerous awards, including an overseas press club citation, And the film, Unaccompanied Minors, which was directed by Freaks and Geeks creator Paul Fague, is based on one of her personal essays. And her writings appeared in the New York Times magazine, Slate, The New Yorker, and she's a former editor of Harper's. Susan graduated from Yale in 1995. So as far as professional pedigree goes, she's incredibly inspiring. And yet, despite all the successes and achievements, Susan has silently lived with anorexia and binge eating disorder since she was 13 years old. Now in her 40s, Susan bravely shares with me, as she has in her incredible memoir, Empty, that food's been the source of her anxieties for as long as she can remember. Eating disorders are really sort of self-punishing. So so that was one of the things. But then I think that in general, there was just sort of like an ache and a longing for what had been lost. And I used not eating and eating to manage that. And while Susan's working towards recovery, she's the first to admit she's still a work in progress. Aren't we all? This is Susan's story. Welcome, Susan. I am so happy you're here. You know, you and I are of a similar age and we've had a semi-similar career trajectory in my dreams. But the one similarity that I couldn't get out of my head literally was imagining you as a teenager listening to Susan Vega's incredible song, Luca. (laughs) That was it for me. So yes, I am a child of the 80s and I'm clearly showing my age, but for what it's worth, my friend, you had me at Luca. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled because that song was such an important song for me. It was the first song that I heard in the new bedroom of my new house when I was 13 years old and had just moved to Colorado with my mother and my sister. A very significant song for me. So I'm glad it was for you too. Absolutely. Susan, in eighth grade, you hear your father ridiculing your mother when she asked him a question. And she later comes into your room and you ask her whether she thinks your dad is having an affair. And she answers by saying, I don't know. And you were shocked less by the idea that your dad was unfaithful than by the fact that your mother hadn't tried to assuage it for you. Do you remember that conversation? I do. I do. That's a very vivid memory for me. I think for that exact reason, because I felt somehow that my relationship with my mother had changed. Instead of doing the thing where you try and assuage your child's fears, she had like acknowledged that what I feared might be true. And the fact that she was able to be so direct with me signaled both that there might really be something wrong, but also that I had somehow changed in my mother's estimation. Like I was no longer the child I had been, the one who needed to be protected from certain information. Did you feel parentalized in that moment? Did you feel, as you said, you, you experienced sort of a shift that you went from being a child to someone she confided in almost? 
It was sort of, it was like a momentary feeling, you know? I mean, it was dark. We were in my bedroom. I was in like the white and pink four poster bed I'd slept in my whole life that had even been her bed when she was a little girl. It was the place of childhood safety. So I don't think I felt fearful of the shift, but I do remember thinking, I don't think I knew what to say back. Like even the way I feel like I'm having trouble like responding now, it's like some of that old sensation is returning. Like, well, what do I say? If the answer is, I don't know if your father is having an affair, what do I say back? Things between your parents were very bad by this stage. And you hear your father tell your mother, you're disgusting, you disgust me. And you say the words were very unsettling in their cruelty, but also in their mystery too, because you wanted to know precisely what had disgusted your father about your mother. And you wondered whether it had something to do with him being disgusted by her body. And I have to admit, I was really curious when I read that, because why was that a place your mind went to automatically? And was that perhaps a reflection of the disordered thinking that was starting to inhabit a lot of space in your mind? I think so. I mean, I think figuring out why that's the place my mind went is the work I'm doing now in my mid-40s in therapy and in some of the work I was doing in writing the book, in trying to understand why so early the body was so fraught for me, why when I heard my father say that to my mother, that that was the place that my mind went, was to the body. There was a part of my mind wondering, like, was it some aspect of her character that he found fault with? But instinctively, like deep down, I felt it in a bodily way. And I felt it specifically about her stomach. Like I had in my head a part that I assumed my father would be disgusted by, which was her stomach. My mother often talked about the size of her stomach with which she was dissatisfied. And for years, the stomach was, and to some degree still is, the part of my body that I get hung up on and obsess over. The first thing I did when I got out of bed every morning was check and see, was my stomach like flat or out or in? It was the sight of so much for me. Your dad introduces you to his new love, Debbie, when your mom is out of town for work. And your mother knows of the affair because she asks your father specifically not to see Debbie that weekend. And he'd not only seen her, but he'd flaunted that meeting to your mum. And during, I believe, what was the same weekend, your father doesn't come home one night. And the following morning when your dad's still a no-show, you call your mum long distance and you say, by dialing her number, I switched from bystander to participant. Debbie was something that your father had done to your mother but leaving you alone was something that he had done to you. What do you think Susan accounted for the misery in their relationship, his cruel treatment of your mum, and his carelessness towards you? Because he certainly loved you. How have you sort of put those pieces together? I mean, I think that my parents' relationship is one that I'm still really trying to understand. And some of it, you know, only they hold the answers. But I will also say I have wonderful parents. When there's a struggle in a marriage, like inevitably there's some fallout for the kids. But I grew up always completely secure that I had like the love of both my parents unconditionally. And they both really made me into who I am today, confident, the kind of person who could say, I'm going to write a memoir about my life and people are going to want to read it and and do that. I do just want to be clear that I love them both immensely and they're still in my life. 
I don't know why they treated each other the way they did, but I do think that that moment where I felt that my father had done something to me mattered in large part because his ire was generally directed toward my mother, not toward me. That's one of the reasons that I felt that so strongly in that moment. I'll be honest with you. I'm setting the scene here because it seems there was this undeniable nexus between the disintegration of your parents' relationship and the beginning of your eating disorder. You say so elegantly in the book, the pain of my parents' divorce was among the things I now understand I used food to manage. Can I ask you in what way? Yeah, that's a terrific question. I mean, I think at first... I didn't really know what I was trying to manage. I think a a couple things. I had a lot of anger and I didn't know how to express that anger. I was angry at my father for having an affair. I was angry at my mother for moving me halfway across the country. I was angry at my mother for, you know, being my mother. I was an adolescent girl, but I really turned the anger inward. Um, And eating disorders are really sort of self-punishing. So that was one of the things. But then I think that in general, there was just sort of like an ache and a longing for what had been lost. And I used not eating and eating to manage that ache. You know, when you're not eating, you're hungry and that drowns out any other kind of pain. And when you're binging, which which I was also doing, you're sort of in this like dissociative state where there's nothing going on except the binge. And then after the binge, there's nothing going on except self-loathing, even though that doesn't feel good. It's not aching or longing. And I want to explore that with you further in a minute. After your parents' divorce, you move with your mother and sister to Boulder, mm-hmm. as you said, halfway across the country, and you hid the parts of yourself that you didn't want anyone else to see, namely your shyness and your smartness. Mm-hmm. And instead, you became disruptive and obnoxious, which was totally out of character. Why was being smart and shy such a hard mantle to wear? I think being shy had long been something I'd struggled with, but I'd I'd been in sort of this like cozy little bubble for most of my childhood where I'd gone to the same school since I was two years old. You know, I went through sixth grade. I was sort of like the superstar and I had plenty of friends. But whenever I was in another situation, like a new swim team or a play at the community theater, I definitely always had trouble like integrating myself. Um, and often felt like an observer. In seventh grade, I went to a new school, a big middle school for the first time, and I was very shy. And I was also a very good student, as I had always been. But the thing I hadn't realized was that in certain environments, being scholastic and winning the spelling bee and joining the Science Olympiad and getting straight A's, that all those things made you um, a nerd. I was really isolated during my seventh and eighth grade years in a way I'd never been before. I didn't like the feeling. I really did not like it. I mean, who who does? And when my parents got divorced and my mother decided to move us to Colorado, I just decided that I was not going to let that happen to me again at my next new school. And I was going to be popular and bubbly and I was going to pretend I wasn't smart. That was just, it was just intrinsic to like the popular and bubbly ideal in my mind. It was part of the definition. By definition, I could not be smart. Isn't it sad that we can't sort of inhabit all of those various aspects of ourselves and we have to compartmentalise and try and 
project something that we think will be appealing to others. It's just, it's a really sad indictment that we feel we actually have to squash that aspect of ourselves, that it's not something to be celebrated. I mean, later in life, it is most definitely celebrated. And if I could tell that to my younger self, there's nothing wrong with being scholastic and there's nothing wrong with striving and there's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve, I would have done a lot better as a young person, I'm sure. But when you're 15, Susan, your preoccupation with thinness becomes a pathology. And you like the feeling of less inside. You felt light, relieved, unburdened, and you wanted more of that. You wanted, as you put, the reward for denying your desire more than you wanted to sate it. Can you explain that thinking and what it meant to you and what it did for you to chase the empty? Yes. So, When I was 15, I caught a stomach bug. And in the course of the stomach bug, I lost a couple pounds. And I found that I liked the feeling of like lightness inside. It felt like an emotional unburdening too. And as the months went on, I sought more and more of that feeling. In the beginning, it was sort of a powerful feeling because I didn't feel weighed down by either like anything inside my stomach. And I also felt this kind of airy sort of like gone down from the top of the roller coaster feeling inside. And eventually that sort of emotional feeling became a lot more tied to the number on the scale and to wanting my body to look a certain way in the mirror and to wear a certain size. And that sort of initial lightness became drearier and, and obviously very destructive and, uh, and problematic in a million ways. But, but at the beginning, it was a kind of bliss. You say that it was actually easier for you to admit to the anorexia than to the binging, which you also lived with, which tells us something about both you and the hierarchy of eating disorders. What does it tell us about you and what does it tell us about the hierarchy of eating disorders? What it tells you about both me and the hierarchy of eating disorders is is, is pretty aligned. You know, Western culture prizes thinness and anorexia is often defined by thinness and binging for me involved living in a heavier body but there was also a ton of shame about wanting about desire about wanting more so anorexia is the denial of your desire i believed in anorexia my shame about my desire being so out of control and the binging i think is a big part of it many people are aware of anorexia nervosa they're also aware of bulimia nervosa. One is denial, one is gorging and purging. But what you suffered from was binge eating disorder, which is different. It is the gorging without the purging. So let's start at the beginning. What is binge eating? Binge eating is defined by eating a large quantity of food at once, like like more than a typical person would eat in one sitting and feeling physically uncomfortable, but also feeling like a loss of control, like feeling like you don't have control over the behavior. It happens in a compulsive way. It's, It's not just, you know, eating a pint of ice cream like once in a while when you're sad. It's something that you want to stop and you can't. Diagnostically, like there are various kinds of binges and, and somebody who's very restrictive might think of like eat crackers as a binge or, or somebody might feel like a, they binged even if they haven't eaten 
to discomfort. But but what I'm talking about is sort of the standard median definition of a binge, large quantity of food, feeling out of control, and then feeling like you can't stop and feeling great shame when it's over. Because as you've alluded to earlier, my understanding is that as long as you're in this binging mode or state, you temporarily displace the feelings and the pain and the yearnings that have driven you to binge in the first place. It's not long lasting. You feel terrible afterwards. And I'd love to explore how physically and emotionally you felt after a a binging episode. It is true for me, and I think for many people, that when I was binging, you know, that one of the pleasures of it was that I didn't have to think. As long as I was, you know, sitting in my mother's kitchen in the house I grew up in, in Boulder, and I was, you know, reaching into a bag of blue corn chips or tearing open an energy bar, as long as I was eating, there was like only that. And as soon as you stop eating, then like all the self-loathing floods in. But that's familiar too. It's like a familiar cycle. And so even though it's so horrible, uh, in a way it becomes familiar and comforting because it's known. Susan, when the binging was at its worst, you felt terrified and trapped, similar perhaps to a person who has Again, I know we're throwing different mental disorders here or different mental illnesses, but similarly perhaps to a person who has clinical OCD, and I'm very specific about saying clinical OCD, I'm not talking about what we in the zeitgeist refer to as I'm a tidy person. No, I'm talking about someone who's living with a very significant mental illness who struggle every single day. So a person with clinical OCD might need to check something ritualistically and repeatedly to give them, say, emotional permission to leave the house. What did binging relieve in you? What itch did it scratch, albeit temporarily? I ask you this because the urge to binge isn't related to physical hunger, I would imagine, and I think you've been pretty clear about that. Gluttony is not the driver, even if it's the manifestation. Am I right in saying it's almost as if you're stuck on some distorted setting, some cycle that can't be disabled? The binging often does emerge out of, out of hunger. It emerges out of restriction. So, so I started binging after a bout of anorexia, which is like an incredibly common trajectory. You are starving your body. Your body demands to eat. And then even once one is like deep inside the disorder, I would wait hours and hours and hours to eat and I would get hungry. And then I would get so hungry that I would binge. So so the cycle sort of feeds on itself. So there is a way in which hunger is involved. But as far as um, what itch it scratched, that's an interesting way to think about it. It was avoiding. It was it was not wanting to feel whatever discomfort that I was feeling. It was wanting to hide. It was wanting to escape. The thing about an illness like this is there has to be some like appeal, right? You have to be getting something out of it to continue. And and that's why these things are so hard to extinguish. So one of the things, for example, that I got out of binging in kind of the wake of a binge. So I'm talking more sort of in college now. I would be in like a cafe off campus and I would have my journal and I would start writing And I was always writing even then. And it was incredibly like creatively generative for me. Um, It was sort of something was like unleashed. I was like so disinhibited. And after I stopped binging and became anorexic again, I became very clenched and and tight in relationships, physically and, and in my work and in my creative work. So that was one of the things that binging did for me back then. Apart from the hunger that you articulate, 
why do you think your disordered eating vacillated from total denial and abstinence to extreme punishing, overeating and gorging? If we can even just set the hunger part aside for a moment, why do you think that you inhabited both of those worlds? Well, I think that eating disorders, they are about like a really dysregulated relationship with desire. And so I knew how to exist at this pole or that pole, but I didn't know how to regulate or like have a happy medium. And I think that that's, that's very common for a lot of us with, with eating disorders is that we are uncomfortable with our own desire and it manifests itself in either denying it or in like succumbing to it. Very well put. And, you know, arguably what remains so distressing and why it's so hard to rehabilitate from an eating disorder is that in order to live, you are at the scene of the crime for the rest of your life. I mean, I've spoken to many heroin addicts. Unlike heroin, for example, if you manage, as excruciating as it might be, to kick the habit, you can arguably make significant lifestyle changes to ensure that heroin isn't part of your day-to-day. That's not mitigating the urge or the craving or the desire. I'm not lessening that in any way. It's not necessarily a world you have to be immersed in 24-7. And yet food's an entirely different ball game. So the triggers are incessant because every meal, every snack, every time you prepare food for your kids or you walk down the street or you go to a grocery store or you're invited to a festive meal, food is ubiquitous. Therein lies the dilemma. It's something that you cannot actually escape in order to survive. It's a struggle. I mean, that was why in my early 20s, I became anorexic again, because the only thing I could think of to do to get over the binging, I wasn't in therapy yet. I thought that I had to quit food. And that is like the phrase that I had in my head. I would just eat as little as possible. That was like the only way I was ever going to manage it. And of course, you can't quit food. And that learning to make peace with food is something I'm still working on. It's not so much like being tempted by food as wanting to feel more relaxed about food, wanting to be less preoccupied with food, wanting uh, it to take up less space. And, you know, as I continue recovery and in therapy, it becomes easier, but like it's an incremental process. It doesn't happen overnight. And the perception is that it's a young person's affliction, and that's not the case. For those who survive it, and you've you've indicated earlier that it has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. It can cause organ failure, cognitive impairment, infertility. That's just scratching the sides. People don't believe that this is a condition that can endure into your 40s or 50s or 60s, but it absolutely can. And that's probably what's so terrifying about it. It's not something that's necessarily you're going to turn 30 and all of a sudden you're going to be well and you're not going to have these preoccupations and you're not going to have an adult brain when it comes to food and how to have a healthy, decent relationship with it. Susan, I appreciated greatly in your exceptional memoir that you didn't include, we've spoken about this before, that you didn't include your various weights on the scales at any particular time because that has the potential to be incredibly harmful to people susceptible to eating disorders. And you certainly didn't want to create a manifesto of sorts on how-to anorexia. But you also note that as much as the numbers mattered too much to you, other things mattered more. The behaviour of denying yourself, the feelings, the actual body sensations of being malnourished, as well as the emotional states. Can you talk me through that thinking? 
Sure. Again, this is something, you know, that that varies from person to person. I always knew the number in my head of how much I weighed, but I wasn't fixated on the number in in the way that a lot of people can get. There were definitely stages where I weighed myself multiple times a day, but it wasn't like I used the number to measure my progress, which is how one thinks of it when one is trapped in that kind of thinking. I wasn't doing it for the validation of the scale. And was there part of me that was doing it for the validation of people around me? Certainly. Like I I wanted to be exceptional and I wanted people to see that I was exceptionally thin. Anorexia, the feeling it gave me was of control and mastery. And I felt like I wouldn't say I felt like I could do anything, but when I was binging, I hid a lot and I, you know, refused a lot of like social invitations and I felt I missed out on a lot. And anorexia was sort of my way of never missing out on, on anything again. So those aspects to me were sort of more important than like the daily encounter with the scale. But that's really interesting because I would imagine that if you are somebody who is living with binge eating disorder, you could be more public in the sense that you could be in social settings because that was your private hell and that was something that you could do privately. Whereas with anorexia, I suppose if you were in social settings where food was involved and you're constantly abstaining, that's more conspicuous. So yes, being in social situations and abstaining from food is like a defining feature of decades of my life. Sure, like there there are times when it's made me a little uncomfortable, but it was like, it was an internal mandate. Like it was just something like I couldn't eat in those situations. And when I was visibly underweight, it wasn't something I was ashamed of. So I wasn't really trying to hide anything. The feelings I was having in that setting weren't always good feelings. You know, I was often really hungry and often like wanting to leave so that I could go home and eat the like food that was the safe food that I would eat the small amount of to feel safe. Or I was, um, drinking and you know I was getting worried because I didn't really have anything in my stomach and everybody else is on their third drink and I'm like sipping this pint this first pint still but with the binging the binging did happen in secret but I felt so sick and large and like I needed to retreat because in that like isolation I was going to like change everything and I was going to reemerge a transformed person that was the reason that it kept me from like going out and doing things with people. You speak at one point of being in the dangerous early stage of anorexia where the world responds to thinness and the girl or boy for that matter subsists on its compliments. And for me, that was so incredibly confronting because I know what it was to be perilously close at times and to feel inexplicably buoyed by the control I was exerting over my own body and the deluge of compliments that looking back were well intended maybe, albeit dangerously misguided by the ones who are giving the compliments. And to this day, and I'm very effusive, Susan, and I compliment (laughs) everybody and I always find the good, but I'm very circumspect ever about complimenting someone on weight loss because I'm frightened. It's not to suggest that my compliment is going to be the tipping point, but the aggregate of a number of compliments can absolutely be treacherous for someone who is vulnerable and susceptible to an eating disorder. 
And what we're talking about here is a chronic psychiatric illness. Once it grabs hold, it can be almost impossible to fully recover from. And that's not to suggest that people can't have long lives. And I don't want to be bleak and I don't want to suggest that there's no help out there because there is incredible help. But what I am saying is that the preoccupations and the ruminations don't necessarily stop even when you're absolutely in a place where you can finally have more of a functional relationship with food. And at one point when it's clear that anorexia has you in its clutches, your mum asks you why you're trying so hard to be a child again. Why did that bother you so much? I want to respond to that. But first, I will say that a full recovery from an eating disorder does involve like the elimination or at least like the really lowered volume of that kind of rumination and thought. So there's, you know, there's like your physical recovery and there's the behavioral recovery, but there's also a more kind of cognitive and emotional and even interpersonal piece. And and all of those I think are are part of, of eating disorder recovery. I do want to emphasize that eating disorders are illnesses that can be treated and people do recover from them. I think it's 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 really important, just as it's important for people to know that these are chronic and debilitating, they are also illnesses that, that people can recover from. Absolutely. When my mother said to me, why are you trying so hard to be a child again? It was when I was 15 and, and I was I was newly anorexic and we were shopping at a department store. I was in the children's section and I found you might recognize this brand as a child of the 80s. They were these Esprit shorts. They were these army green Esprit shorts. They were for a child of 10. And I was thrilled that I fit into them. And, and that disturbed my mother. And that was when she said, why are you trying so hard to be a child again? And that disturbed me because it felt true. Like it felt like there was something to what she'd said. There was some part of me that was trying to rewind. As a teenager, you're not supposed to want to rewind. You're supposed to want to like be like hurtling out into the world and becoming a woman and having adventures and being a rebel. Those were all the things that I thought I should want. And I think I was scared of them. I think I was really scared of my own sexuality. You know, I'd been trying to sort of get rid of my my breasts and my hips. I actually hadn't been trying to get rid of them actively for years, but I'd been uncomfortable with them for years. I think looking back on it, that comment of my mother's disturbed me precisely because it was so true. Yeah. Susan, what do you think in your childhood made you internalize that thin mattered? I mean, it's, you know, a whole host of things. Both my parents were conscious of their weight. I have this really vivid memory of back to school shopping with my grandmother. I was going into fifth grade and my younger sister was going into kindergarten and we were in this little dressing room trying on back to school clothes. And my grandmother clapped her hands together and she said, I'm so glad I have thin grandchildren. And it was like this moment oh that my <laughs> I know, I know. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And it was a moment that we all kind of laughed about in our family. Like, oh, my grandmother, we called her BJ. Like, oh, BJ, of course. But like, I also knew it was true. Like she was glad she had thin grandchildren. Like being thin was important in our family. I think there was that. 
And and then there's, you know, and then there's all kinds of like, I was a good girl. I was a good student. And thinness is part of the mythology of, of being a good girl. It's one of the things that kind of fits into that. So there were just, you know, and, and that's only that's only the tip of the iceberg. There were just a million different ways that thinness got coded for me but the, as, as an important, as an important thing. You write so powerfully in the book that as your grandmother, BJ, who we've just spoken about, was on her deathbed, she lamented the fact that she didn't have the strength to jump on the scales almost to get a final earthly or or mortal high from seeing how much the number would have dropped. I mean, this was a woman who was dying. So when you sort of see the pathology in that thinking, you can kind of understand why thinness had taken centre stage in your family. For me, it was the moment that the penny dropped that was the moment that I processed how systemic it was in your family to venerate thinness. Mm-hmm. You know, we can forgive grandparents for saying ridiculous off-the-cuff things that they did 20, 30 years ago because I've often said on the show it's very hard to look at something through, let's say, a 1985 lens. That's exactly how we spoke. We're much more politically correct now. We would be loath to speak to our children like that. But it is just really interesting that that was so neurologically almost bedded down from a familial perspective. That moment with my grandmother when she was dying, I mean, the thing about that moment was I didn't judge her. I identified with that feeling of being sick and wondering how much she weighed. It seemed perfectly natural to me. And and like you said, it was a moment when I was so, I was caught up in anorexia myself. But even now, I just do want to make clear that yes, thinness was venerated in my family and was part of the family culture. But I don't blame my parents for my eating disorders. And I have nothing but compassion for my grandmother having that feeling. And in a way, I feel fortunate that she was vulnerable enough to say that aloud because it was a significant moment for me, even though at the time I felt such identification with it later and feel different about it now. Do you think that your grandmother suffered from an eating disorder? That's a really good question. So my grandmother was born in 1920 and her mother always telling her that she was too chubby as a child. That's a little unusual um, So for, for a child in that era to have grown up with, um, with kind of the same thinness fixation that I grew up with in the 1980s. So that was part of it. I guess I would say that... Um, you know, when I was in the throes of my eating disorder, like my life was defined by it. And I don't think that BJ, my grandmother, I don't think her life was ever defined by an eating disorder. She took a lot more pleasure, communal pleasure and public pleasure in food than I did, which which I think is the thing that like tips her over into the like healthier category than, than me. There were a number of secrets in your family, Susan. You hid your eating, your mother hid her drinking, she had a very significant problem with alcohol, and your father for a time hid his infidelity. Was shame and silence the family currency because there was a definite model for concealment? Yes, I do think sometimes you'll read a memoir and the flap copy will be a family defined by secrets. And I wouldn't say that that is exactly the story of my family. Secrecy is certainly my own story. I, I think that the secrecy- I'm just projecting here, Susan. Oh, no, no, no. It's just the story oh. of my family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm 
I I read those memoirs, so please write your own. Um, <laughs> I'm not as brave as you. That's why I do the show. I want to be inspired by other people. Go well, on. my mother. No, I mean, I do think that there's there's a real parallel between the secrecy my mother had about her drinking and the secrecy that I had about my eating disorder, especially because. I started binging in high school when I was living at home with my mother. And so a typical scenario would be, I would be up in my room doing homework and I would want to go down to the kitchen to binge. I would need the kitchen. And, you know, I would open my door and I would hear my mother downstairs in the kitchen and she was drinking in the kitchen. And I would have to wait for her to finish and go upstairs to her bedroom. And then I would descend the stairs and I would turn the light back on in the kitchen that she just turned off. And I would open the freezer and then I would binge in secret in the room that she had just left where she had been doing her drinking in secret. So the kitchen was like the site of both our secrecy, which is interesting. But I think my mother's secrecy was in some ways maybe a model for me um, of sort of how to like tend and maintain this hidden life. My mother says that she didn't consciously know about the binging at the time, but I wonder if unconsciously we both gave the other space. We were both aware that the other was doing something that she didn't want anyone else to see. That's fascinating in and of itself. You made the resolution you'd made every birthday since you were 17 years old, and that was to fix your eating. And then you're sort of suddenly startled by that incantation because you were a grown woman, still a slave ultimately to your teenage disordered thoughts. What does that juxtaposition do to you when there's sort of this reckoning, I am a fully grown woman and I am not able to expunge this can I call it monkey on my back? I just, I'm not able to get completely past it. I mean, I think when I had that thought right before I was turning 41, because the problem had started in my teenage years, it was sort of a teenage problem. I think now I understand that it had become an adult problem. <laughs> like like the thoughts I was thinking, I've been thinking them since I was a teenager, but they weren't my teenage thoughts. But even after that, it still took me years to commit to therapy and get real help. And I think there were a bunch of reasons for that. But one of them is because an eating disorder becomes such a part of your identity, your coping strategy. I wish I had an answer for sort of how the thinking changes, but like I'm right in the middle of that. Like that's that's what I'm actively engaged in. Sort of my interior monologue is different than it was two years ago, for example. Do I still spend more time thinking about food than I want to? Yes. But I do like believe that it can be different. There'll always be some part of this there. Like I'll never be able to like wake up and have a day where I'm not like fixated on, okay, so, um, so I'm going out to lunch at this restaurant with this person and I better look at the menu before I go. And I better like be able to plan what I'm going to eat. And when I, I think I would have thought that that was just always going to be part of me. Now I understand that it won't always be part of me. I believe that now. And I love that you said that because I've been very candid to my own horror on the show about living with anxiety. And I would say that until a year ago, I just thought that was my speed. Mm -hmm. I've said to people, it was my DNA. Yeah. I couldn't conceive that the ruminations and the thoughts associated with anxiety 
could actually be a little bit more removed from it. It was absolutely implausible. It just sounded nuts. I mean, what I'm saying might sound nuts, but I'm just saying it sounded so inconceivable that Tammy, Michelle, Faraday wouldn't have these constant concerning thoughts because I have sought help and I'm so grateful that I have and now they sort of live a little bit more removed from me and I'm like, this is a whole new world. I didn't know that this was remotely possible. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I I really, really understand this notion that when you've lived with something for a very long time, no matter what it is, it sort of inhabits you Mm -hmm. and therefore you actually cannot make any kind of rational distinction between where you start and where you stop and where the, the disordered thinking is. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted to ask you, though, apart from the health and physical benefits that go with dismantling an eating disorder, what are the social and emotional upsides? Does it make you more tethered and present and engaged? Because after all, Susan, you have this insane career. You have two strapping boys. (laughs) I'm sure you aspire to want to be more in the moment and less in your head. So how does dismantling the eating disorder help with all of that stuff? You know, when I think about moments I've felt closer to recovery or things that I'm pleased about in like the progress I've made toward recovery, it's so much about that like social and interpersonal stuff. I mean, the thing that you said about being present instead of distracted is just huge. Like being nourished instead of hungry, like it goes a long way to being able to be in the moment. Like terms we hear all the time, but like are actually meaningful, like self-compassion. It's a lot easier to be present when one is compassionate toward oneself instead of hating oneself or, you know, having eaten like eight crackers beforehand. I think that my eating disorder was a secret. And I think that hiding that secret just sort of predisposed me to hiding in other ways. When we were talking about hiding my smartness, I got very good at uh, pretending to be somebody else. And I could be whomever I needed to be at, at any given moment. But as a result, I never got sort of practice being who I really was, or who I really am. And stripping away the eating disorder and the hiding that goes along with it. If one thinks of an eating disorder as needing to have a different body you know, to sort of as the concrete expression of that need to be somebody else, I'm sort of finding my way to a more like authentic version of myself. And and that's been really nice too. I mean, I will say that a lot of this has happened during the pandemic and a lot of it has happened with my own family, which has been wonderful, but I haven't had the chance to be with coworkers, be with friends in a sustained way for a while. So, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, but that feels like still somewhat like unexplored. I was going to actually ask you, how was the pandemic for you? Did that exacerbate any difficulties you had with food or did it make it easier? Cause it's been such a difficult time for so many people for so many different reasons how has it impacted on you? I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, I was really scared that I was going to contract COVID through food. My husband would bring blueberries home from the grocery store 
And I would be terrified that, you know, by touching the clamshell container, I was going to get COVID on my hand and get it on the blueberries. Like I had even fears that were irrational, even at the time, like there are no documented cases of COVID transmission via food. We basically knew that even then. But I think because food has always been the site of my anxieties and the way that I think I'm going to like destroy myself by like giving into my desire for blueberries, I was sort of convinced I was going to get COVID. So that was sort of how that expressed itself. But overall, I think it's been really positive to be at the stage in my recovery where I'm eating more and eating differently and to have the opportunity to like do that without really worrying about people seeing my body, whether those people are my coworkers or the people I'm sitting next to on the F train in the morning in in Brooklyn. That's been a real gift, I think, actually. Susan, you're wonderfully educated. You're the editor of one of the most extraordinary radio programs slash podcasts of all time. And yet the rational part of your brain can't spare you from the disordered irrational thinking. So I hope you know that when I'm saying this, it takes one to know one, as we've already already (laughs) shared. This is also part of the extended therapy session, I'll be honest. But I often marvel at how the smartest, in inverted commas, articulate, successful people I know are struck with mental health challenges that no number of objective brilliances can organically alleviate. How do you make sense of that? I feel like work maybe has functioned like the eating disorder in a way. I think that it's been an escape sometimes from things I didn't want to feel like how one can pour oneself into work in kind of a compulsive way. I'm 47 now. So that book came out when I was 46. Like I said, you know, even in college, I was writing. I always wanted to write. And I think the fact that I had an eating disorder throughout the decades of my adulthood and the fact that it took me a while to write a book, even when I'd always been writing and always knew it was something to do, those two things are related. The eating disorder had an impact on my creativity. It had an impact on me being able to be courageous enough to write the book I needed to write. It had an impact on my writing and the way that I was sort of always hiding this illness, this fixation, this obsession with food from the world. I was There was always a sense, I think, that I was hiding something in my writing or, or not really saying the real thing. I've been very lucky professionally. You know, I've worked hard, but I think creatively. I marvel at how women call it lucky. I I always marvel at how (laughs) women call it lucky. You've worked your bum off. Like you've absolutely worked your bum off and you've put your pedal to the metal and you've you've done it all. So, yes, you're you're lucky, but you're lucky because you've worked like a dog. So kudos to you, props to you. I just want to give you that. That's that's nice of you. That's nice of you. Um, is it okay if I ask you? Has your like has your anxiety like? Do you think work is something that you've used to manage anxiety? Oh. or maybe work is something that's caused anxiety. Oh, probably both. Maybe for me, it's a, it's deeper than that because I think that this incessant longing to achieve something, to make a mark, to live a very full life doesn't come from necessarily a very good place. It comes from a very traumatic, mm-hmm. broken, yeah, broken young girl who wanted very desperately to differentiate herself and to create some kind of a life that had meaning and was replete with purpose. So mm-hmm. I don't know if work's actually like assuaged my anxiety, but I am incredibly laser focused when I am invested in work. 
I've never actually thought about this, but maybe that displaces the anxiety in the moment. Yeah. I think the drive comes from maybe not such a healthy place. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It totally makes sense. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. I think that I really relied on those like markers of achievement again as like it's like part like those external factors like like in the same way that I wanted to be like exceptional in my body size like I wanted to be exceptional in all areas there was like no other option like that was like the way to be in the world and instead of thinking about who I was who I was was tied to, to those other things. Like, like they, they couldn't be extricated. Yeah. I think it's only really in my forties that I've understood like, wait, there are other ways to measure one's self-worth than, uh, yeah, yeah. It took me a while to get there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know if this will resonate with you, but for me, it's often been a case of, and certainly when I was younger, I think that I'm liberated quite considerably from that mindset but it was a case of feeling I had to be exceptional to be ordinary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. I hope that this is not being received by people listening to this as feeling exceptional. It's not about feeling exceptional because that doesn't inhabit my brain. I don't feel exceptional. I've never felt exceptional. In fact, horribly, I've often felt mostly and most of my life less than. But my drive to be excellent at something was always driven by just wanting to feel good enough. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. my system could ever inhabit the space of feeling, wow, I've done something exceptional. That doesn't live in my world. It's just that you have to go to the ends of the earth in order just to feel okay. I see that. I mean, I think that I also learned that I have a hard time with disappointment. And so if, if one is constantly achieving and doing the exceptional thing, one doesn't have to deal with being disappointed, which is a critical skill for all of us any age Absolutely. To, to deal with disappointments because they happen every day. So you meet a wonderful guy, Mike, at about the age of 21, and you go and do a pregnancy test because you fear you might be pregnant as your period is two months late. But the truth was that you had gone into starvation mode and you were too thin to menstruate. And you say that your system shutdown was an objective measure of your success, which is incredibly poignant, but I shuddered when I read that. And yet when that same wonderful man, Mike, who you ultimately marry, tells you that you have a problem and that he's really worried about you, you knew that that was probably the time to start to get some help. You guys have been married a long time now. How has he been able to help or support you when he sees you slipping into another descent? He is wonderful and sensitive. I think that sharing this stuff with him over the past couple of years has led to just this really kind of vulnerable, really transformative moment in our relationship because I'm saying all these things to him that I thought I could never say. And I think it's made him feel that there are things that he can say too. It's just opened up a whole line of communication for us. And as far as what he'll say about the food stuff, I mean, I think it's like he's 
we're both learning together, you know, what, what helps for him to say. I'm, I'm much less likely these days to do something like say, oh, I, I feel fat or do I look fat? And there was definitely a stage where he just like, he just wouldn't have had wanted anything to do with it. And, and then there was a stage where he sort of learned like, what do you really mean by that? What are you feeling? Now, that's a thing like I am less likely to say, but, but if I were to say it, I would know he like would receive it on like the symbolic level instead of on like the concrete level. Like, what is she talking about? Like, she's not, you know, quote unquote fat. I love your relationship. I think it's really beautiful. And I think the way that the two of you have grown together and that he has been able to be such a support system and that your relationship has Whether the storms of your eating disorder, I'm sure there have been others because that's life, is really, really encouraging and really a wonderful bit of optimism. I want you to tell me about something. I alluded to it earlier because I loved this. I loved how you wrote this. But tell me about boosting the other tracks. Because for anyone suffering from any mental illness or any mental health challenge, the constant is often, as we've said, the ruminations and the preoccupations. And your metaphor for boosting the other tracks was so resonant. I don't know if it's because I've adored music all of my life. You know, it might be naive to suggest that certain thoughts or compulsions can be completely obliterated, particularly for people with very entrenched thinking patterns, irrespective of what the cause of those are. But to somehow make other thoughts predominate so that the destructive ones can recede into the background, that just might be the key to health. And I've spoken about it in my own life as the longing to turn the volume down when it comes to anxious thoughts. But boosting the other tracks is equally, if not more, elegant and impactful. And I loved that. Well, I'm so glad. I mean, it's really like this is something that I don't think I, I mean, I know I wouldn't have arrived on it without therapy, without my therapist. So, so the context for it was I was explaining to her about, about those thoughts and, and wanting them to go away. And I was using the metaphor of, of digital sound editing and, I, I, but it, it could actually be analog sound editing too. I was using the metaphor of sound editing where you have uh, sound on more than one track. And, and I said, I wanted to, you know, delete the track with the eating disorder thoughts. And she was like, no, 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 delete is wrong. Like, like the key thing is to like raise the signal on the other tracks, like develop other strengths and ways to cope. And that had never occurred to me, like that the idea wasn't necessarily to like eliminate the thoughts, but to like boost the levels on the other tracks. And, you know, so my, in that moment, my question was like, well, how do I do that? And then she was like, who's the engineer? Um, which was a terrific question because it's me, yeah. like, like you're the only one who, who can do that. But then it's like, so what are those other tracks, <laughs> right? Like that's the next question. And that's the thing again, like I'm still figuring out, I think like a couple things we've touched on, like self-compassion is definitely one of those tracks, reaching out to others, like being in relationship with other people, trusting other people, like I think is one of those tracks. But I do think it is a really important model for recovery and for mental health, because so often we think about just getting rid of something instead of like what, what new we can, we can bring forth. How are you doing now? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you. I mean, like I said, you know, I still think about food more than I want to, but I'm physically healthier. I'm emotionally healthier. I'm more resilient. I have more hope. I feel like excited. I feel, you know, there's sort of a narrative of, so I'm 47. There's sort of a narrative of women in middle age 
sort of feeling like, oh God, I'm, I'm aging, I'm declining. And, and of course I have, you know, the, the, I have varieties of those thoughts, but really I'm in kind of this like metamorphosis moment, which I feel thrilled by, and which I think is probably happening for other women at midlife too, but it's a story that doesn't get as told as often as the one about diminishment and decline. Yeah, I uh, I hear you, sister. Susan, what a delight it's been to have you come and share your journey. For all that you've achieved, and I'm in complete awe of your career and your successes, I am equally, if not more, awed by you as a human being, as a gifted writer, as a Susan Vega fan, (laughs) but perhaps most of all as a fighter and an enlightener for others who struggle with this insidious disease. You have done so much good for so many. Thank you so much for joining me on Brave Journeys. It's been delightful. Oh, well, I've loved talking to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening today. The brave journey of my next guest is equally compelling and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Oh, and if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. Brave Journeys was created, hosted and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful team, including my audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg. Ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.